Every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in once again for Tim Alders. Here on the America Out Loud Network, thank you for being part of the audience. Thank you for supporting the sponsors who make this program possible. And thank you for thinking for yourself. I want to share something that I found with you earlier today. A friend sent this to me. I, uh, I have not read a lot of Carl Jung. I know he's one of the fathers of modern psychology. But I saw this quote and I thought, boy, is this timely? For, for the times that we live in, this time where there is so much pressure for people to conform and to follow the masses. Come on, everybody, run with the herd. Well, where are we running? It doesn't matter. Run with the herd. Listen to this quote. Carl Jung said, It is not for nothing that our age cries out for the Redeemer personality, for the one who can emancipate himself from the grip of the collective psychosis and save at least his own soul who lights a beacon of hope for others, proclaiming that here is at least one man who has succeeded in extricating himself from the fatal identity with the group psyche. I don't read a whole lot of, uh, you know, psychological news or psychological textbooks or things like that, but boy, does that speak to me of, of what is needed right now, today. And, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Um, one of the reasons, of course, comes down to the the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, at least the Pfizer vaccine, has now received full FDA approval. Now, this is a process that normally takes at least 10 years. But in less than a year, bam, they got it. And if you think that there has been intense pressure before to get people on board, and, and please understand what I'm saying here. If you If you get the vaccine, I don't think less of you. I don't think that you're a sheep, you know, for doing so. But that, that pressure, that coercion that, that is being exerted, is uh, that's the number one reason, at least for me, why I've chosen not to get the vaccine. It's not that I don't see some value in it, but there is so much arm twisting going on that, that I seriously have to wonder if the ones who are pushing it so hard, namely governments, big business, churches sometimes, the ones that seem to be pushing this the hardest, I, I doubt that they have my best interests in mind. That's a choice that has to be made freely. That's a choice that has to be made without someone sticking a figurative gun in your ribs and saying, do it. Smile. Come on. Pretend like this is good. So for those who find themselves in a similar situation, um, take, for instance, uh, I guess it was New York City just today announced that uh, the, the largest teachers union in the country in New York City announced that New York public teachers will be required to get the vaccine. It's mandatory. There is no opt-out, no exemptions, no exceptions. 
Now, some people are pretty happy about this. There's a lot of celebrating. You know, you jump over into the Twitterverse and, wow, it's good, good, finally. It's about time somebody's doing something. And the disturbing part here isn't that, oh, man, they're all going to die from vaccine-related, you know, problems. I'm not saying that at all. I Look, I don't know. I don't know if the vaccine is the precursor to a mass um, extermination of humanity. I've heard some interesting theories out there, and I just, I don't know. What I do know is it's being pushed so hard, and the, the concept of a person using informed consent to come to their own decision about whether or not to take that vaccine is being denied. And people are celebrating. That's, it's crazy. And we've talked about how, how mass psychosis can take over you know, a, a, a society. Hopefully you've watched the video that I shared a couple of weeks ago. From the Academy of Ideas. Wow. It's not unlike the witch hunts, you know, of of, uh, early American society. It's not unlike the mass psychosis that swept through the Chinese population under Mao with the Cultural Revolution. And there have been other examples of this. And it's happening now to us. I want to share with you an article I found from Robert E. Wright. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Education. I'm sorry. Let me try this again. The American Institute for Economic Research. (laughs) I'm, I'm mixing up my institutes. Robert Wright is referencing a book that was written back in the 1950s, 1956, a book by a... Uh, I guess he was a, a psychologist or psychiatrist from the uh, Netherlands by the name of Joost Mirlo. And the book is called, brace yourself, this is a pretty graphic title, The Rape of the Mind, The Psychology of Thought Control, Menticide, and Brainwashing. Now, why would Mr. Mirlo, I'm sorry, Dr. Mirlo, he was a psychologist after all, why would he write about this kind of thing? Well, because Mirlo who passed away back in 1976, was a Dutch psychiatrist who fled Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. He saw this firsthand himself and then studied the the various mental techniques that are used to control people, to brainwash people, to bring about that, uh, that mass psychosis that gets people to think and act in certain ways. The article begins with a nod to uh, AIER contributor Barry Brownstein and an article that he had written, um, I believe it was earlier this year, maybe back in May, called Big Brother Depends on Little Brother. That's where, that's where Robert E. Wright first in, was introduced to Juiced Mirlo's classic, The Rape of the Mind. And Brownstein masterfully weaves Mirlo's insights into a compelling narrative which describes how people, even 21st century Americans, can be brainwashed into believing and repeating all kinds of, this is the word he used, dismissinfoganda. <laughs> it's pretty descriptive, and I think it gets the point across. Judge not the crazed twit book troll because he knows not what he does. Instead of training the troll to drool like Pavlov's dog in response to the dinner bell, the master has trained the troll to make vicious ad hominem attacks in response to trigger words like the founders, liberty, or Trump. Boy, that word alone is enough to send a lot of people into, you know, spittle-flinging. And while the book begins with vivid descriptions of the physical torture techniques like the ones described in Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, Mirlo 
also discusses the cost, less costly or drastic ways to impregnate people's minds with totalitarian lies, even about themselves. I'm going to share some of these with you. And I think you I hope you recognize them and say that does sound familiar. At the very least, you'll know what's going on. And, and at best, you can, you can work to fortify your mind against that. So here's the detailed playbook of mass psychological manipulation that looks all too familiar today. The first principle is isolate. The conditioned reflex, Mirlo noted, could be developed most easily in a quiet laboratory with a minimum of disturbing stimuli. They know that they can condition their potential victims most quickly if they are kept in isolation. Now, Robert Wright says, look, bringing people into laboratories for re-education would be so conspicuous that maybe even a few of the infamous uh, AWOL libertarians would have protested. So instead, people were urged, or in some cases forced, to isolate themselves from others even after it became very clear very early in the pandemic that lockdowns did not work to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus. This is the reason, Mirlo explained, the civilian populations of totalitarian countries are not permitted to travel freely. It's the reason they're kept away from mental and political contamination. Feelings of being alone must be instilled, he noted, to prepare the mind for the taming process. In other words, unthinking submission to the master's will. Not enough attention has been given to the psychology of loneliness, especially to the implications of enforced isolation. Social intercourse is the daily nourishment for our senses and minds. And without that nourishment, which humans need even more than bread, most people slip into neuroses or even psychosis. I'm sorry, neurosis or psychosis, both singular. Secondly, play the guilt card. Oh, (laughs) books could be written on this one, right? Most people, Freudians like Merlot believed, are imbued with a deep sense of guilt about either wanting to kill or fornicate with their parents or others. Major religions tap humanity's deep-seated sense of original sin, and so too do authoritarians. Continual purges and confessions turn the masters into parents or even parent or godlike figures, forces to be obeyed. So in this view, cancel culture is not just social media silliness, but it's the weaponization of that innate human guilt. Repent, ye sinner or apostate, or else. Then there's reward and punish. That's the third principle. People, like animals, Mirlo explained, learn their lessons more quickly if rewarded by affection, by food, by stroking, after doing as the master commands, and of course being punished for inaction or disobedience. Governments used food, blame, and praise during the pandemic to punish the brash and to reward the compliant. Recall Joe Biden's ham-handed attempt to induce Americans to mask and vaccinate with the promise of allowing outdoor barbecues on Independence Day. Recall also that cities and states shuttered restaurants to punish residents for testing positive for COVID. Authorities indeed followed the science, that is, the science of Pavlovian conditioning. Number four, mind rape, the most vulnerable first. Robert Wright says, while Mirlo made very clear that every human being can be forced to suffer their minds to be penetrated with totalitarian falsehoods, there are some people, or rather there are people more amenable to brainwashing than others. Some retain the training for the rest of their lives while others unlearn the behaviors or thoughts quickly. Following Pavlov, Mirlo hypothesized that innate differences or earlier conditioning to conformity may be responsible for the variation. Principle number five is make the most of the messenger. 
And I, I got a kick out of this comment. Robert Wright says, you know, while my conditioned response to seeing Dr. Fauci is violent vomiting, many Americans rep- respond to him in a positive way. Mirlo noted there are some persons who can create such immediate rapport with others that the latter will soon give up many old habits and ways of life to conform with new demands. Remarkable but true. And if I could just offer this as a quick aside, this is something I've seen in, in my own mother's view of the world. She gets most of her information from mass media, from corporate media, newspaper and television news. What do you suppose they're feeding this this 86-year-old woman day in and day out? I can tell you this. It's constant fear. It's constant concern. Oh, look at the cases. Look, we even put the graphic up in blood red to show you how serious and dangerous this is. And not so long ago, my mom and I were talking about, I think Dr. Fauci's name came up. And I just said, you know, I don't trust a word that guy says. And I was a little bit surprised at how quickly she jumped to his defense. Well, I think he's a good man. And I think I think he is just trying to do his best to help protect us. So, yeah, make the most of the messenger. How many people honestly believe that anyone in government, let alone Dr. Fauci, really cares about your health? Principle number six, repeat, repeat, repeat. To insert his own message, the master must often erase previous conditioning. Now, Mirlo claimed this is best done through boredom and repetition, which arouses the need to give in and to yield to the provoking words of the master. What better way to bore people into submission than lockdowns and a constant barrage of banal, patently false messages like we're all in this together? Number seven, engage in serious wordplay. Mirlo noted that words like traitor provoke negative conditioned feelings, even when applied dishonestly. But uh, everybody hates America now, or at least they've been trained to hate America. So now we had to replace that word with armed insurrectionist and racist in order to stimulate the desired effect in 2020 and 2021. Now, when objectively racist behaviors and armed insurrectionists can't be found, they have to be concocted from mostly peaceful protests. Ropes that sort of resemble nooses for Keebler elves and slang words for home runs or masks that end in the same syllable as the N-word. By raping language, Mirlo warned, a leader can become a master of the mind. You know that lesson hasn't been lost on the people who are out there crafting messages for the masses right now. Number eight, promote other directedness. Mirlo also warned about masters conditioning people to ask, well, what do other people think? Instead of asking, what is right? Robert Wright says, as I pointed out last year in an essay, The Desperate Loneliness of Social Media, other directed personalities seek approval and applause rather than respect, and hence readily abuse social media in order to feel well-liked, because their likes or followers or friends appear to be legion, even though they're cheap, trite, ephemeral signals at best. Other directed personalities undermine democracy by backing the most popular candidates for office rather than the best ones. And they also undermine rationality, allowing the creation of a common delusion. Now, interestingly, while Mirlo was critical of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, he often calls out Red China for trying to catch people like rabbits by the ears. Number nine, they use every available communication medium. So Mirlo noted that successful masters like the Chinese Communist Party used every means of communication possible 
to get their mind-numbing messaging into the consciousness of their victims. The Nazis even went so far as to paint their slogans on the stoops of the houses and in the streets, much as BLM backers did in 2020. The Dutch were able to resist seduction by Nazi oversimplification and slogans, Mirlo suggested, because they could hear saner voices from London via the radio. Number 10, you eliminate logic and you and open discussion. He says, perhaps the most powerful tool of the totalitarian is to destroy or deny logic so as in to induce a state of confusion, the state in which nothing had any validity. That's why 2 plus 2 equals 4 has suddenly become racist and why our putative masters repeat ad nauseum that we must wear masks even though they hurt more than they help. It's also why censorship, even of medical doctors, has grown so quickly since 2020. Number 11, you leverage the urge to conform. Mirlo did not quite call humans sheeple or sheeple, but he came close. In the whole animal kingdom, Mirlo pointed out, humans are one of the most helpless and naked beings. He remains like a monkey fetus. He never grows into the mature, hairy, fully covered state. In other words, people remain in a persistent fetal state, dependent on maternal care and paternal teaching and conditioning. So they remain in a retarded state, a never-ending social dependency. In other words, easy pickings for masters like Mussolini, Himmler, Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, Castro, Jong-un, Jinping, and uh, whoever we happen to see today. This next one was interesting, too. This is number 12. Push drugs whenever necessary. Despite all that, Robert E. Wright says humans love freedom and a dose of laughter or love can break totalitarian mind-bending, which explains why many formerly funny comedians are now so banal and boring. A good way to keep people focused on totalitarian messaging and distracted from love and laughter is to encourage them to get high or low. Any altered mental state, Mirlo wrote, will help the master to hypnotize victims. The alcoholic, he noted, has no mental backbone anymore when you give him his drink. And the same is true for the chronic user of sedatives or other pills. And those other pills abound. He goes through a long list. Acid, black tar, Cody, crank, chill pills, happy pills, weed, tranks, uppers, vitamin R, whippets, zombies, whatever. It's all good. Good for controlling people's minds. Like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Soma. Robert Wright says, if you think that supply constraints or decreased demand or demand... Uh, decreased drug addiction during the lockdowns, think again. Actually, the stats show that addictions went up, overdoses went up, a lot of people self-medicating out there. Their world is being turned on its ear. They're trying to, to make sense of it, or at least escape from it. Number 13, you induce fear. And Robert E. Wright reminds us of a quote from President Franklin Roosevelt. Remember during the darkest days of the Depression when he famously told the American people, you have nothing, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But that was a lie. Because we should also fear the government and its corporate cronies trying to manipulate us with fear. Robert Wright says perhaps the most interesting of Mirlo's claims, which build on Eric Fromm's 1941-1942 book, Escape from Freedom, Fear of Freedom, is that people no longer fear death so much as they fear living a real life. Stepping out of a relatively safe childish dependence into freedom and responsibility, he noted, is both hazardous and dangerous. 
thus making individuals vulnerable to paternalistic policies and politicians purporting to protect them from life's many challenges. And although fear sometimes leads to anxiety and panic, it can induce indifference and apathy. All reactions suggest a need for a strong leader who can protect people from the enemy, be it a virus, global climate change, terrorists, or commies. So Robert Wright says, look, things could be worse, though as our putative masters have not yet systematically tried to deny people sleep or employed other forms of physical torture, perhaps because such techniques would be just too obvious or too costly to employ. America is not yet what Mirlo called totalitaria. That was his hypothetical dystopia where political ideas degenerate into senseless formulations made only for propaganda purposes. It is any country in which a single group, left or right, acquires absolute power. Any country in which disagreement and differences of opinion are crimes. In which utter conformity is the price of life. But it's much closer today than it was in February of 2020. And think back, you know, what we talked about a few minutes ago here, the the New York City teachers. Some people are happy all these teachers are going to get fired if they don't get the needle. They need to get the needle. It's the right thing to do. So, yeah, we deny them their ability to make a living or at least deny them this job. That fits some people's sense of, well, that's good. That is just. Why? Well, because they were disobedient. Because they weren't on board with everybody else. Wow. That is really, that's some dark thinking when you consider what kind of thinking it lines up with. Robert E. Wright says, in sum, Mirlo's rape cannot inoculate readers from totalitarian mind control. But he says it does expose the grooming techniques employed by those who would be their masters. And it reminds all Americans of the crucial importance of the Bill of Rights and other constitutional checks and balances. He says one would think that the leaders of an actual democracy would not only maintain the secrecy of ballots, but also do everything in their power to prevent anyone or anything, foreign or domestic, from turning its citizens into mindless automatons, insect-like followers, or childish adults fragile enough to be frightened into illness by cable news tickers. Having clearly failed to maintain the basic prerequisites of of self-governance, their job, that's their only job really, he says, America's political leaders ought to join Andrew Cuomo in stepping aside to make room for more intelligent and learned and less power-mad policymakers. Now, maybe you're nodding your head in agreement at that. Yeah, they should. That's a good idea. (laughs) They really should step aside. And while they're at it, they should give us permission to be free once again. I want you to think about what that last part really says. They should give us permission to be free. I know this is going to sound radical, but I have to ask you to consider this. Does a free man or a free woman beg for permission to be free from someone who has set themselves up as being an authority over them and has the know-how and the authority to tell you what to do? I'm, you know, you can feel free to disagree with me because I, I could be wrong on this, but my understanding of freedom is no. You do not get your freedom by asking permission for it. You don't. And that's true whether you're just an individual, whether you're a small business owner. You want to be free? You make the decision that it is time to exercise your freedom. You don't ask with your hat in your hand, please, sir, may I be free? Nope. 
you step up and just begin living with freedom. And this scares the heck out of some people. You will hear howls of outrage. I mean, in some cases, literal howls of outrage. How selfish you are. How dangerous you are. Somebody ought to do something. There ought to be a law, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the pattern. That's what freedom requires. It requires people, if I can, if I can quote uh, my friend Ryan Bundy, yes, from the Bundys of Bunkerville, the only rights you have are those that you actually claim, use, and defend. So wouldn't it stand to reason that if you don't know your rights, you're not going to be able to claim them, use them, and defend them effectively? That's why we all have a lot of homework to do. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on America Out Loud. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you Find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Look down deep into my eyes. I 
Hey, once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. My name is Brian Hyde. I'm filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. And we've got some other great stuff to cover here. I'm sorry to be banging the drum so hard about uh, COVID because my message really is not about uh, COVID. And I think that the message that, uh, that underlies everything that is going on could probably be summed up in this question. Will man be free? In fact, if you really want to get technical, you could probably sum up the entire history of mankind. Will man be free? And there's something going on that uh, always seems to be showing us that th- this is not just a question that can we, can we can answer safely once. Yep, man should be free. Even when we attain a certain amount of freedom, the forces are constantly at work to take that freedom, to diminish it to control it and otherwise, you know, wrest it out of our hands. And it takes some really interesting uh, forms. So I wanted to share with you a, a little example of what was going on in Salt Lake City, Utah. The uh, The city council was petitioned, not city council, excuse me, the school board for the Salt Lake City School District was petitioned by parents. And I mean, there was a lot of active parents who came to them and said, We're anxious for our kids to get back to school. Don't you dare mandate that they wear masks to school this year. And it was strong enough opposition. I know some would portray, well, just parents were probably rude and they were screaming and threatening and just, oh, terrible people. These were parents asserting their parental authority saying, do not make my kid wear a mask in school. And the school board wisely said, Okay, we're not going to do it. And then last week, Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall decided that she would declare a state of emergency. And under that state of emergency, she would issue a mandate requiring every student in K-12 through schools in her city to wear masks. And I mean, there was the usual crocodile tears. Well, we've, I've thought about this so hard and I'm just trying to do what's right for the children. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sickening. But she's on very shaky legal ground. And I want to share with you, this is a press release from, actually, it's, it's an essay slash press release from the Libertas Institute, which is also located in Utah. One of the best organizations that I have ever encountered in terms of standing up for freedom and, and not just, you know, saying the right slogans, but I mean like f- effectively shaping public policy to make sure that government is properly restrained. And to better understand what the mayor of Salt Lake City did, I'll let my friend Connor Boyack explain that. Connor writes in a defiant move that contradicts the legislature's intent, if not actual codified statute, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall has unilaterally issued an executive order declaring an emergency due to COVID-19. <gasps> wow, that's the first we've heard about that. Oh, sorry, sarcasm off. And ordering all children in K-12 through schools in the city to wear a face mask. Now look, I know people have very strong feelings on the face mask issue. I do myself as well. But here's the question. As always, when it comes to matters involving government, does she have the authority to do so? Connor says earlier this year, the Utah legislature enacted a new law designed to substantially restrict the ability of local officers, including health departments, from issuing orders that restricted people's rights. 
because these health departments are at the county level, that's where the orders were previously being issued, and that's where the legislature focused their restrictions. But Mayor Mendenhall thinks that, well, if it's county-based to focus, that that's what would allow her as a city mayor to have some wiggle room, and then she proceeds to issue her own mandate for school children. And Connor says, yet awkwardly, her own legal framework analysis, which is required with, with every bit of public policy, makes clear what the problem with her order is. The document explains, after a mayor declares a local emergency, the mayor may exercise emergency authority, which includes utilizing all available resources of the city and employing measures and giving directions to local officers and agencies in order to help respond to the disaster. In other words, her own legal justification makes it clear that she lacks the authority to control people's behavior. Declarations of emergency are designed to unlock government resources and allow executive officers to dictate actions to government officials in order to respond to the temporary threat. Now, conversely, such authority is not intended to allow a mayor to decree on her own that all people living in her jurisdiction must be restricted and behave as she demands. This is further evidenced by the fact that the state law refers to an order of constraint that broadly includes restrictions such as mask mandates, lockdowns, and so on that control people's behavior. For example, an order of constraint involves the government exercising physical control over property or individuals, or requiring an individual to perform a certain action or engage in certain behavior. And in state law, such orders are issued by a local health department in response to a declared public health emergency, subject to a variety of restrictions in the new law. Who is not authorized under state law to issue an order of constraint? Well, that would be city mayors. Connor writes, Mayor Mendenhall's executive order cites two state laws as the basis for her supposed authority. The first is Section 53-2A-205, the same section, the legal framework summarized above, falling sh- uh, summarized above and falling short. The law says that a mayor can take any additional measures the mayor may consider necessary and spells out a list of examples clearly designed to respond to a temporary threat using government resources. But you know, none of those examples mentioned pertain to dictating how people must behave. See, that would be an order of constraint. The second state law cited for authority is 53-2A-209 in the same area of law as the previous section. Here the law says that mayor's orders have the full force and effect of law during the state of emergency, making clear that lawful orders by an executive during an emergency must be obeyed. But this section of law doesn't refer to which orders are allowed to be given. Only that once orders are properly made, they are lawful. You'd have to look elsewhere in the law for a list of what types of orders can be given, and hint for mayors, such orders do not include that order of constraint. So a declaration of emergency is intended to provision government resources in order to ameliorate a disaster, not to restrict people's activities and mandate certain behavior on their part. Mayor Mendenhall lacks legal authority for this order, as her own legal framework summary suggests. And even more oddly, her order says, Salt Lake City's personnel and resources are ordered and authorized to perform all functions authorized by federal, state, and local law to address this local emergency. Now, Connor says it's unclear what this is even in reference to. What is the list of functions all government employees in Salt Lake City are now ordered to perform by every relevant law imaginable? This executive order 
is on very flimsy legal footing and it's vulnerable to a lawsuit and should no suit occur, well, then the order stands for 30 days, at which point, under state law, the city council must extend the order for it to continue. They're allowed to extend it for any length of time they desire, so long as their motion specifies a future date. And the legislature may also intervene to terminate this order if the city council does not. So the bottom line is it remains to be seen if other elected officials will take action to provide a check and balance to this apparent violation of executive authority. And I come back to the earlier question I was asking um, in regards to Dr. Fauci, but I would ask it, you know, regarding uh, Mayor Mendenhall in Salt Lake City. Do you really believe this person cares about your safety and your health? I'm not being facetious, okay? I, I didn't vote for her. I don't know. I don't know much about her. All I know is politicians will say whatever they have to say in order to get elected, and they will do whatever they have to do in order to stay in power. Sometimes that means they will, you know, contort themselves into a pretzel shape so that they can uh, secure the funding that they're looking for. Keep those coffers full so re-election will take care of itself. But it also comes down to you don't miss an opportunity to seize and consolidate and hold on to that power. That's what it looks like to me. And yes, I could be totally wrong. I don't know, you know, maybe I'm mind reading by trying to determine if that's what she's really about. All I know is there's there's so much pressure being brought right now. And every politician who is looking for a chance to flex has found it. Does that not put a little bit of a chill up your spine? They know it's an emergency. They know if they say it's a public health emergency, they have now used the cheat code to do whatever they want. And it's crazy. The legislature in Utah actually met and reined in the county-level health officials saying, look, look, you can't do this, or at least you can't do it for you know an inordinate amount of time because you, this, these decisions need to be made by people in, who are in authority but who are accountable to the voters. And here you have a city mayor who was like, ah, I see some wiggle room. Maybe that's what I need to do. By the way, um, you've probably already heard, but the FDA has approved the uh, Pfizer COVID vaccine. Now, this is likely going to ramp up the efforts to get more people to receive the shot. There are still some very serious questions that remain. And I, I realize I'm, I'm risking being shadow banned, you know, by any social media that, uh, you know, whose algorithm picks up. Oh, did he say something about vaccines? Because, you know, we've got to we've got to make sure this is approved opinion. Does, does it uh, adhere to what's on this three by five index card? I can tell you right now it doesn't. <laughs> but listen on and let's talk about this. Perhaps you have heard that one of the things that they're seeing right now, medical officials are seeing breakthrough infections meaning people who are fully vaccinated are still coming down with COVID in spite of the vaccination. That's got to be a really bad feeling for the person who maybe was reluctant to get the vaccine and then still ended up getting sick and still found out that, well, and we also don't want you congregating with uh, too many other people, you know, limiting the size of gatherings, and you still have to wear a mask everywhere indoors. That was supposed to be the escape ticket, right? This is the get-out-of-jail-free card. All I have to do is get the shots? Oh, okay, let me roll my sleeve up. Nope. Oh, and you're going to need boosters as well. So some tough questions are starting to show up. And if the, part of it is, well, is, is, this, uh, is this vaccine really working 
as intended. And, and the problem here is, as, as John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education points out, the CDC stopped tracking breakthrough infections back in May. Yeah. And by refusing to track most breakthrough cases, I think they only, they only are tracking the ones that either result in hospitalization or death. Somehow the CDC has arrived at this conclusion that collecting and providing less public health information is actually in the public's interest. John Miltimore writes, over a recent 12-day period, the Milwaukee Brewers had nine players test positive for COVID-19. Now, while we don't know the vaccination status of all the players, the team disclosed that most of the players were vaccinated for COVID-19, including former MVP Kristen, Christian Yelich, who tested positive after experiencing mild flu-like symptoms. Brewers GM David Stern said he did the right thing. I reported those mild symptoms when it was announced that Yelich was heading to the disabled list. We got him a test. The test turned returned positive, rather, and we got a confirmation test, which also came back positive. Now, interestingly, the Brewers are not an isolated example of Major League Baseball teams experiencing a rash of vaccination breakthroughs. Teams across the league have experienced similar problems, including the New York Yankees, who saw nine vaccinated players sidelined in May with COVID-19. This is the vaccine working, said CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. That's what she told ABC's George Stephanopoulos at the time, adding that those who tested positive didn't get a severe infection. Now, John Miltimore points out, Walensky is correct that data show vaccinated individuals are far less likely to die or become hospitalized with COVID-19 than unvaccinated individuals. Yet breakthrough cases also appear to be more common than the CDC, media, and public health officials suggest. CNN says the breakthrough rate is less than 1%. While CBS News reports that 99.7% of the new COVID cases involve unvaccinated people. The Hill, meanwhile, agrees CDC data show less than 1% of fully vaccinated people get COVID. So how does this data mesh with anecdotal evidence that suggests many vaccinated people are contracting COVID? Miltimore says to be sure it's not just Major League Baseball teams who are seeing spikes of COVID cases among vaccinated individuals. A recent outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, for example, found the vast majority of COVID cases involved vaccinated individuals. In fact, their town manager, Alex Morse, told NBC overwhelmingly the affected individuals have been fully vaccinated for COVID-19. The outbreak attributed to the rise of the Delta variant was serious enough to prompt the CDC, which published a report on the outbreak, to reverse its recommendation that vaccinated individuals needn't wear masks indoors. But that wasn't all. The CDC study also found, as the Washington Post noted, individuals carried as much virus in their noses as unvaccinated individuals. Walensky said high viral loads suggest an increased risk of transmission and raised concern that unlike other variants, vaccinated people infected with Delta can transmit the virus. Whoops! John Miltimore says all of this data suggests two important things. First, COVID cases among vaccinated individuals appear to be higher than less than 1% that's claimed. Two, vaccinated individuals appear to be quite capable of transmitting the virus to others, as Walensky states. Indeed, the viral loads in nasal passages suggest they could transmit the virus at rates similar to unvaccinated carriers. Kind of undermines that whole justification for why we need to get everyone the shot. 
But let's get back to the data for a moment. John Miltimore says, in the world today, we often hear data is king. But the problem is the data have been a total mess throughout the pandemic. COVID, the New York Times recently observed, has shown the CDC is utterly broken. And perhaps because of this, John Miltimore decided to see how the CDC tracks and defines breakthrough cases. As of May 1st, 2021, CDC transitioned from monitoring all reported vaccine breakthrough cases to focus on identifying and investigating only hospitalized or fatal cases due to any cause. A statement says this shift will help maximize the quality of data collected on cases of greatest clinical and public health importance. Now, there are a couple things that John Miltimore observed about this. Um, and first of all, he says the fact that almost no one noticed the CDC simply stopped tracking and reporting the vast majority of vaccine breakthrough cases not involving hospitalization or death. That's pretty whack. But the bigger question is, how is public health better served with less data? Does this mean the CDC isn't tracking breakthrough cases anymore unless someone's hospitalized or dies? He actually reached out to the CDC for clarification, but he never heard back from them. But if one goes to the CDC site, you will find information on vaccine breakthroughs that includes only hospitalizations and deaths. That figure, as of August 2nd, so this is, you know, three weeks ago, stands at 7,525 7, cases, which is below the 9,245 breakthrough infections the CDC had documented as of April 26th. The CDC noted the true rate was higher due to a lack of surveillance and testing. Since then, three and a half months have eclipsed. Nearly 70 more people have been vaccinated and the Delta variant has arrived in force. Unfortunately, what the actual breakthrough rate is, nobody knows. Because the CDC stopped collecting and publishing the data, choosing instead to focus just on identifying and investigating only those cases that were hospitalized or fatal. You see what he's saying? How did they come to the conclusion that this will better serve the public health if we just provide the public with less information? It also creates confusion within the media because they're left guessing what the breakthrough rate actually is. CNN points out that roughly half of U.S. states report data on breakthroughs, and in those states, official statistics put the COVID infection rate of vaccinated people at less than 1% ranging from 0.01% in Connecticut to 0.9% in Oklahoma. A highly cited Kaiser report similarly puts the breakthrough rate at well below 1%. And an NBC News analysis covering 38 states, meanwhile, found 125,682 breakthrough cases, which represents about 0.08% of the 164 million vaccinated Americans. So the actual breakthrough rate appears to be much higher than 0.08% based on anecdotal evidence. However, and he says a more careful perusal of state data would seem to support that. But he goes, let's start with Major League Baseball. There are about 750 professional ball players on 30 Major League Baseball teams. Applying that rate, 0.08%. To Major League Baseball players would mean that we could expect less than one player, that's 0.6, to experience a breakthrough case. A rate of 1% would mean seven or eight players. But as previously mentioned, 
the New York Yankees alone had nine breakthroughs in May, and many other teams racked up breakthrough cases. Now, one could argue that perhaps Major League ball players, for some reason we may not yet understand, are more likely to contract the virus after being vaccinated. But plenty of examples, other examples can be found, including the six vaccinated Texas Democrats who tested positive for COVID after taking a charter plane to Washington, D.C. Ask yourself this. How many people do you personally know who contracted the virus after being vaccinated? John Miltimore says, I know many, and I would add my voice to his. Most of the people I know who are dealing with COVID right now are all people who received the vaccine. Miltimore says a thorough review of the evidence strongly suggests breakthrough cases are far likelier than the claims in headlines. A New York Times story published Wednesday exploring the Delta variant, which now accounts for more than half of COVID cases in the U.S., hinted at this. The paper noted that the CDC does not tally national figures on breakthrough infections that don't result in hospitalization or death, so the precise incidence is unknown. Even though the CDC is saying breakthroughs are extremely rare, how do they quantify that? Seeking comment, the Times received a vague response from Walensky in reply to an email inquiring on breakthrough incidents. Dr. Walensky, in that reply, said a modest percentage of people who are fully vaccinated will still get COVID-19 if they are exposed to the virus that causes it. Okay, what does that mean? Give us numbers that we might better understand. But infectious disease experts hinted that breakthrough cases are more, than like, are more likely than the current data suggest. Dr. Abrar Karan, an infectious diseases fellow at Stanford, told the newspaper, I think that if we started to test people just randomly on the street, we would find a lot more people who test positive. And later, New York Magazine published an article under the headline, Don't Panic, But Breakthrough Cases May Be a Bigger Problem Than You've Been Told. Journalist David Wallace-Wells, who spoke to scientists at Harvard and Scripps, says public health officials may be overstating the vaccine effect on transmission and understating the scale and risk of breakthrough infections. The message that breakthrough cases are exceedingly rare and that you don't have to worry about them if you're, un- if you're vaccinated, that this is only an epidemic of the unvaccinated, that message is falling flat. That's according to Harvard epidemiologist Michael Mina. That's what he told My- Wallace Wells. Eric Topol, an American cardiologist and author, was more blunt, saying he estimated the vaccine's efficacy against symptomatic transmission had fallen to roughly 60% for the Delta variant. Topol said the breakthrough problem is much more concerning than what our public officials have transmitted. Now, Wallace Wells notes, it's impossible to estimate the true breakthrough rate because the CDC stopped tracking and reporting most breakthroughs in May. But the data he assembled paint a much different picture. In Delaware, between July 1st and July 22nd, breakthrough cases were 13.8% of the total. In Michigan, between June 15th and July 30th, the figure was 19.1%. In this period, there were 2,369 breakthrough cases and 12,409 in total. In Utah, 8% of new cases were breakthroughs in early June. But by late July, as as Delta grew, the share grew to 20%, even while the total number of cases almost doubled. Which brings us to lies, damned lies, and statistics. John Miltimore says none of this is to say Americans shouldn't get vaccinated. Evidence suggests it significantly reduces one's chance of dying or becoming hospitalized with COVID-19. 
A New York Times analysis of 40 states found that fully immunized people accounted for less than 6% of COVID deaths and less than 5% of hospitalizations. Other data is even more promising, including statistics Dr. Fauci cited in June, claiming 99.2% of COVID deaths involved unvaccinated individuals. John Miltimore says a close loved one of his was vaccinated this week after he suggested it was a good idea. And he says the same day he encouraged several other loved ones to get the vaccine. So it's not about being pro-vax or anti-vax. This is about the CDC not being forthright on vaccine breakthroughs. Choosing not to count vaccinated people who tested positive for COVID as breakthrough cases is little different than choosing not to count positive COVID cases as actual cases. Imagine how much lower U.S. numbers would be if the CDC stopped tracking cases and instead only counted deaths and hospitalizations. The great American writer Mark Twain popularized a well-known saying on stats, saying, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. John Miltimore says we've seen throughout the pandemic how authorities have manipulated statistics to serve their own agendas. Most notably, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who changed the public health reporting to cover up the number of New Yorkers who died in nursing homes because of his policies. By only tracking breakthrough infections that result in hospitalization and death, the CDC is depriving the public of crucial information on the efficacy of vaccines and fueling the vaccine wars. And increasingly, these wars are a bipartisan chorus of vaccinated voices who paint the unvaccinated as either crazy people, there are no microchips in it, Times columnist Charles Blow recently quipped, or filthy creatures who are prolonging the pandemic because of their selfishness. Then you have Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey back in July saying, it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks. Ivey was just echoing sentiments Joe Biden had expressed days earlier. Look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, Biden has said, while speaking to reporters on the White House lawn. And, of course, this chorus has had its desired effect. A recent Axios Ipsos poll found that 80% of Americans blame the unvaccinated for rising cases, even though the U.S. has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, which has fueled efforts to force Americans to get vaccinated by requiring vaccine passports, either to travel or do business. Blaming the unvaccinated for the drawn-out pandemic may be popular, and it may be politically convenient. But as the Times points out, the CDC's own data suggests vaccinated people can carry as much virus in their nose and throat as unvaccinated people. Moreover, breakthrough transmissions appear to be more common than the CDC has led on, which is undoubtedly why they stopped tracking most breakthrough claims. So there's a cost that comes with hiding the truth. This is why you and I have to be truth seekers in every facet of our lives. John Miltimore says the effort, to, the CDC's effort to hide breakthrough cases not involving death or hospitalization from the public eye may serve its presumed goal, getting more Americans vaccinated. But he says it undermines the truth and further erodes public trust in government, which you may understand is already at historic lows. The silver lining in the story is that a full analysis of the science of vaccination makes an even stronger case that the decision of whether to vaccinate or not should be made by one person, the individual getting the vaccine. 
So, yeah, did you think he was anti-vax? I'm just curious as I was sharing that. You know, were you under the impression, wow, this is quite, quite the anti-vax screed here? Yeah, he's not an anti-vaxxer. I don't consider myself an anti-vaxxer. I'm an anti-don't-force-me-to-do-things-against-my-will kind of person. But for some reason, there's it's like all the bets are off on this one. And people are cheering at the prospect of, good, we need to shut these people down. They, there is no place in our society for them. And I wonder if they stop and, and ponder where that thinking is leading them, where, where they are marching with that kind of a mindset. I mean, it's, it's conceivable, isn't it, that you could see people now having to wear you know, an armband of some kind or perhaps have to be separated from society. After all, this is public health. This is an emergency. They're diseased. We've got we to gotta keep the unvaccinated away from us. Maybe, maybe we could build some kind of a camp to contain them. I'm using, by the way, the CDC's language, containment facilities, in which you are put into the facility, but you are not allowed out of the, the facility. We're going in a really ugly direction. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we're all going to be goose-stepping around and wearing funny mustaches and, you know, having bright uh, black and white and red banners. It just means we're, we're marching the same trail that every totalitarian society has done before. And that's pretty serious stuff. Know your rights. Know how to stand for those rights. Claim them. Use them. Defend them. This is the Disciples of Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders, here on the America Out Loud Network. <laughs> 